Hello everyone and welcome to Changing Conversations with me, Billy Burke. And me, Sarah Philp. We're really glad you've joined us on this podcast. This podcast is all about changing conversation. Conversation is one of the oldest ways to nurture the conditions for growth and improvement. We come alive when we talk about what's important to us and it's this that has the potential to guide us into new and different ways of being and offer the potential for great things. In this podcast, we want to explore the big questions and the small questions. It's a place for thinking and conversations that hold the potential for change. You will hear from us as well as some of our guests. We would love to hear from you and for you to get involved. You can also follow us on Twitter at Changing Conversations. This episode is a recording of the live event that Sarah and I held with Professor Mark Priestley on the 11th of November 2021. Mark had joined us in season one in a really interesting conversation which proved to be one of the most popular um, of the series and of the podcast so far. So an obvious choice to follow up for a live conversation at a time of reform and consultation in Scottish education. And I'm sure that you will enjoy Mark's presentation followed by some questions from me and Sarah and from people who joined on the night. Thanks, Billy, and uh, thanks for the introduction. Um, I'm not sure that my brain is worth picking tonight. Um, I've spent the day marking, my brain is frazzled. So excuse me, please, I'm apologizing in advance if I'm talking nonsense at any point. Uh, I'm pretty sure that when my mum christened me Mark, she didn't have this in mind, but that seems to be what I spend my time doing at the moment. Um, okay, I'm good. gonna share my screen and uh, get that up and then we'll make a start. Can someone just confirm that you can see that and it's on presenter mode? Perfect. Okay, excellent. Right. So, um, as Billy said, the OECD review, the second one we've had in six years, um, is uh, actually quite important at the moment. And uh, I had high hopes for this. I'm perhaps a little bit more pessimistic now, having seen some of the responses to it. And I'll, I'll say more about that as we go through. Um, I saw this, um, I think, as a watershed moment for Scottish education. The previous review was quite disappointing in that it tinkered around the edges and, and did a few small changes, um, although one of them potentially quite significant, the regional improvement collaboratives came out of that. But I think um, where we are now is looking at much more substantive change. We've seen a report which in many respects was positive about Scottish education, but in other respects was quite critical. Um, as ever with the OECD reports, they're framed in very bland language. The recommendations are often easy to read in multiple ways. Um, for me, what's really uh, significant about the OECD report is the sustained critical commentary in the final chapter of the report and the follow-up Stobart review. And if you haven't read those, I would encourage you to do so. Um, I'm gonna say a little bit about this today. So I'm gonna split this into sort of three areas, I suppose. One is, I'm going to talk a little bit about the, the report itself. I'm going to foreground that by talking a, a bit about where I, where I see it, uh, the discussion should be starting. I'm going to talk a little bit about our work on curriculum making, uh, though not for very long. And then I'm going to apply that to where I think the OECD report should be taking us as a system. 
Um, so three sort of parts to this, and I'm going to try and talk for less than half an hour. I have to be aware at quarter past eight. So the longer I talk, the less time for questions. Um, okay, so, and I'm not going to do what a, a famous English educationist did recently, which is to say, um, I've got loads to talk about, so I should be bloody fast, bloody fast. It's definitely not going to do that. Okay, let's start with where I think all conversations about curriculum should start, which is questions of purpose. Uh, the collage, I think, um, summarises quite nicely some of the significant challenges we face as a society for, for which education obviously plays a major role, uh, particularly in forming uh, the, the knowledge, skills and attributes that young people develop um, in order to deal with these problems. And we can see a whole range of issues here, some international, some national, um, some quite local. But it does really, I suppose, uh, amplify the, the sort of magnitude of the scale of the problems that we perhaps face uh, and the importance of education in helping us to equip young people. So some questions here. I mean, for a start, how on earth do we educate young people to live in such a complex world? You know, we, we, we're expecting people to think critically. We're expecting people to be informed, to have the detailed knowledge and understanding of the worlds in which they move, to be active and ethical citizens within these worlds and also to become qualified for what, let's face it, are becoming increasingly complex and uncertain workplaces. And I don't subscribe to the notion that we're preparing young people for jobs that don't yet exist, but I do subscribe to the idea that uh, the workplaces are complicated, unstable, and, and constantly shifting, and that people will have to prepare for a life where they're not going into one career, but will have to, to probably retrain several times. Um, so how do we do that with an education system? And then that raises further questions about you know, where decisions about the curriculum should be made and by whom. Is this a decision for government? Is it a decision that education professionals should make? Is it something that students, pupils should be involved in? And then um, I suppose a third question, and this is something that's of great concern to me at the moment, is how do we best resource and support the system? Because this isn't something that schools on their own can do. This is something that has to be looked at systemically, and I want to come back to that. Now, what we see emerging internationally at the moment is um, a great deal of discussion about these sorts of issues in bodies like the OECD. Um, this is from the OECD's Education 2030 um, project. Uh, and this quotation's here, you know, what knowledge, skills, attitudes, and values will today's students need to both thrive in the world as it is, but also to shape that world for the better. So this is a dynamic job that we're doing here. And by extension, how can we design instructional systems, school systems, to develop these knowledge, skills, attitudes and values effectively? So these are, I think, big questions here. And for me, they have to be grounded in these why questions. If we start to lose sight of this question, what education is for, then we start to uh, develop education systems that are not fit for purpose, that, that move away from educational purpose, that become uh, really much more about short-term instrumental goals, for example, pleasing the inspectors or um, ticking the box or um, raising attainment, but not necessarily educating young people in the way that we want to. Now, the OECD helpfully talk about um, some of the big challenges that education systems need to look at. And these are interdisciplinary challenges, of course. They're, they're complex challenges that can't be looked at from the point of view of just perhaps the traditional education systems uh, compartmentalized into separate subjects. 
we need to have a look at these from an interdisciplinary perspective. Environmental challenges, economic challenges, social challenges. And ultimately underneath all of this is this idea that we need to both develop the person and we need to attend to the needs of society. So this is a complicated job. And it's a job that CFE has sought to do. In fact, CFE was quite radical in that it was one of the first of uh, a new generation of national curricula uh, emerging in the early 21st century. And it's been copied and emulated around the world since. And this is pretty much the dominant approach now, actually amongst OECD countries. Um, there are exceptions, England, for example, and Sweden to some extent. So these are the four capacities which essentially form the purposes and really, I think, provide a statement of what a young person should become as a result of their education over time. Um, I'm very dubious about ideas that we should be able to measure them, of course, because I see these as, as inputs rather than outputs. They're, they're long-term goals which should inform the practices we put in place, not something to be measured and ticked off. Um, Despite, I think, the positive aspects of CFE, we have experienced, I think, a number of problems. Um, I mean, for a start, I think that CFE turned down a wrong avenue early on by choosing the wrong technical model. Um, the E's and O's, the outcomes-based model, was, was really set into the curriculum at a very early stage. Um, and it's been subject to a whole um, range of problems, including um, the spiral of specification, which is quite common to this type of curriculum. E's and O's aren't, aren't specific enough, so we get the benchmarks. And before we know it, we've got, you know, thousands of statements to take into account. And that leads in turn to instrumental box ticking approaches um, or fitting practices to the new curriculum. And a particular problem with CFE is that it hasn't specified in any manner or form. Uh, and this has been criticised by the OECD, uh, the sort of knowledge that young people need. Knowledge is mentioned a lot, but it's always mentioned in the abstract. Um, and so the decision about what content should go in is often left up to schools, but without a process or a set of criteria for determining what that content might be often, other than what's specified uh, in exam syllabus. Um, we've seen curriculum narrowing. Uh, it's been very high, highly publicized in terms of secondary schools and the senior phase. But I think actually equally, if not more worrying, is the sort of curriculum narrowing we're seeing in the BGE, particularly in primary schools, where we're seeing um, a big focus on literacy and numeracy because they're tested. And we're, not, and we're seeing a downgrading of other arguably less important uh, subjects which aren't tested. And what we've tended to do, I think, with CFE is focus on the product rather than the process. Uh, and this is about holding in place particular practices using accountability and um, you know external people coming into a school will look for particular things to happen um, rather than the processes which are leading to a good education will look for evidence that something has been done and I think that that has led uh, over time to an overcrowded uh, over cluttered curriculum and one that isn't necessarily terribly coherent um, it's led to bureaucracy and I think ultimately we have a system which has created mixed messages, um, which has um, you know, provided tensions and perverse incentives and often unintended consequences. And it's a system where the bits don't necessarily articulate very well. So we see particular approaches to curriculum development. And this one I think is quite common around the world. The idea that we take the product, the curriculum, 
and stuff it in any old way. It doesn't fit very well, but hey, that's what we have to do because that's what the curriculum specifies. And it's very easy to do this, but we end up with a, a curriculum in, in schools which isn't necessarily well thought out or, or, or coherent. A more subtle variant on this is this one here. Uh, and I think we see this very clearly in the way that uh, CFE has been made to look like five to 14, particularly in primary schools. Um, the, the snake eats the elephant. Um, the, the curriculum on the surface looks different, different terminology, different um, uh, paperwork, but underneath fundamentally the practices are pretty much the same. And I think many of us will be familiar with that. So it's in this context that we have the OECD report. And the report itself, I think, uh, as many OECD reports are, is, 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 uh, is helpful and unhelpful simultaneously. It's, um, the recommendations, I think, lack clarity and focus, but there's plenty of detail if you read the report carefully. Uh, it offers praise for CFE, particularly in terms of certain strengths in the BGE, and it, uh, the reviewers liked advanced higher, for example. They felt that that was more in tune with the philosophy of CFE. Uh, they were less impressed with the, the rest of the senior phase. But plenty of um, areas for development, um, particularly the idea that CFE needs to be much more explicit on what knowledge is the most worth. The idea that the, the senior phase is misaligned with the curriculum. Uh, there was criticism of the low non-contact time in Scottish schools in comparison with other countries, which then in turn means that we have little time to develop the curriculum as intended if we're handing over to teachers. A lack of coherence across the policy landscape, which I've mentioned, tensions in policy between policies. Um, the report was very critical of a lack of a long-term perspective on reform and, and pointed to the sort of often piecemeal and incremental approaches to change. It talked about the wrong structures and, and looked at, for example, the idea that we perhaps need a, a curriculum development agency, which of course has been looked at at the moment. Um, it, it's, talked about uh, the, the limited capacity across the system in lots of ways. This is also about, um, it's not just about low non-contact time, but also about um, arguably the sort of experience, knowledge, professionalness, understanding we need to do this across the system and not just in schools, but also in the agencies that support schools. And it talks about poor communication. Now, I think all of these are really apt um, criticisms. Um, and I think that we need to respond to this positively. Now, there are risks in the way we uh, respond. Um, we could, for example, focus on the positives and ignore the challenges. We could deal with the issues piecemeal. We could uh, have a, 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 a lot of in good intentions about reforming and then let the system grind it down so nothing happens. And I'm afraid to say we do have form here because this is exactly what happened after the 2014 report. Um, conversely, we could overload the system if we try to do too much. And really, I think what we do need is a 10-year um, agenda for reform, which um, looks in the long term at what we do and picks off the bits in the order that makes most sense. But I think we do need to treat this as an opportunity. It has been said to be a once-in-a-generation opportunity to modernise education in Scotland. And I think what we have seen genuinely um, we saw it in our, in our review of national qualifications last year, and we're seeing it in our research, and I see it in the conversations I have with practitioners, is that there's plenty of enthusiasm in the system. 
uh, particularly for qualifications reform from across the piece, including parents and students. So this is an opportunity we need to take. Now, to date, the government has done really two things here. Um, first of all, we've had the establishment of Ken Muir's expert group and the advisory panels. And the main focus here is on, is on the, the structures. And I think probably this is the right approach. If we focus on getting the infrastructure right, then we can look at the reforms that need to follow on from that in terms of, for example, reforming the curriculum itself um, or reforming the qualifications. So this is about, um, I think, probably putting in place a national agency which operates at a high level and then looking at how the system itself supports different activities across different layers. Uh, it will mean, I think, changes to the way we do things, certainly. Um, but let's wait for Ken's report. The second thing that's happened, and this is more recent, uh, if you haven't seen it again, you should read it, is the publication of the government's Curriculum for Excellence Review, which is an implementation framework. And what that's done is it's taken the recommendations, uh, which I think are quite vague, uh, but it's also focused on the positive aspects. And I think already I'm seeing evidence, and this is why I'm not so positive anymore, that some of the more critical messages are being glossed over and perhaps ignored. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> um, so the final chapter of the OECD report, I think, needs to be revisited. And what I want to do in a minute is actually to have a look at some of the, the, the things that are happening with this review, with the framework, and then to cross-reference that to what the OECD said. Um, as I said, if you haven't looked at this, you should do so. So um, I've got three or four slides here about this, and I've, I've highlighted some of the key messages. Um, the first one, uh, and this is a set of recommendations that sort of mirror the OECD's recommendations. The first one is, is about um, the um, revisioning, revisiting the vision of curriculum for excellence. And what the government have, have articulated here is more than, um, I suppose, more accurately than revisiting the vision, is they've decided to revisit the 2019 refresh narrative. Now, I'm a little bemused about this because the refresh narrative was nothing more than a refresh of the message. It was not actually explicitly a refresh of the, the core of the curriculum, the structure of the curriculum or the form of the curriculum. Um, I know because I was on the group that developed the refresh narrative. I think it was very welcome at the time because it made CFE more accessible. But I think that we should be doing much more than looking at the refresh narrative. And I'll show you in a minute what the OECD said about this. So this gives us the opportunity, I think, to do something big. And I think already we're seeing a door closing slightly. Although interestingly, if we have a look at this text underneath, we can see that those doors are also kept open. A review cycle, which is something that most countries have, which would include looking at the four capacities and the eight curricular areas. And this is perhaps um, um, a look at the structure of CFE and particularly in relation to knowledge and, and how skills fit with that. Um, and then, of course, we're likely to see, as, as I said, fairly large scale reform of assessment and qualifications. So mixed messages here, I think, in the government's re uh, report. Um, of course, there's Ken Muir's group, and it mentions this, um, which is about clarifying roles and responsibilities, looking particularly at governance. And um, particularly, that's going to be followed up by work to, um, to set out uh, the division of responsibilities and the OECD used the word subsidiarity here, the idea that we are, um, uh, I suppose, 
we're working out where decisions need to be made in the system, where it's appropriate to make decisions nationally, where it's appropriate to devolve them locally, and so on. So that's that's the second area. The third area, and I want to just highlight a couple of things here, is to do with the alignment of assessment and qualifications. And there's a couple of interesting things here. First of all, um, the, the, the framework is signaling very clearly that we are looking at a, a change in the design. There have been messages that exams will still remain part of this, which I would welcome. Um, I think it's a mistake to conflate exams and qualifications. What we need to do is reform qualifications and then work out what methods we need to use uh, for accrediting them. Um, there's a commitment here um, to updating the guidance, BTC5. But interestingly, and this is despite the criticism in the OECD report, national standardised assessments are going to continue. Um, and I'll, I'll show you what the OECD said about that in a second. And the OECD suggested instead going back to a sample survey based approach like the old Scottish um, survey of literacy and numeracy. Um, but the government appears here not to be replacing SNAZs with uh, a sample based approach, but in fact, um, adding to it by using the sample survey based approach for assessing the four capacities. And again, I'm a bit bemused about this because I'm not sure we can meaningfully assess the four capacities and I'm not sure it's something we should be doing. And it has the potential to become, again, hugely bureaucratic. The fourth slide on this is to do with raising capacity, and that, I think, uh, fundamentally will have to involve the RICs. I think that's an important development. Um, and significantly, and this is in line with the Green Party, who are, of course, in agreement with the government uh, to have a look at the role of uh, what might be called uh, performativity, the measures and indicators and the performance indicators and how they have the potential to distort and deform practice. Um, and we, in fact, did some work for the Green Party on that a couple of years ago. And of course, here, more teachers. So the capacity building is, is definitely part of this. And I very much welcome that. So what did the OECD say? Um, well, first of all, um, they said that Scotland should re-examine the vision in meaning and practice. Now, that seems to be a little bit more than just looking at a fresh narrative to me. And in fact, if we have a look down at the bottom of this page, we can see that they actually said this exercise needs to be different in nature and outcome from the production of the refreshed narrative. So what we're potentially looking at, if we take the OECD seriously here, is something that's much more than just tweaking and tinkering. What we're looking at, I think, is a proper reform of um, the, the core elements of CFE, and that means um, refreshing or revisioning the four capacities, which I think work but need to be updated. But it also means questioning whether the current structure of E's and O's and benchmarks is the best way to articulate a curriculum. Um, what the OECD also said was that the role of knowledge should be more explicit. And again, I would agree with this. And this would, uh, I think, involve refreshing the design of learning areas. And I would, I would question, and I think the OECD um, implied this, that the E's and O's is not the best approach to articulating knowledge. Now, I don't want to see very detailed specification like, like the English National Curriculum, but the, the OECD did explicitly draw attention to the countries around the world, several of them that used a big ideas approach, which is effectively a narrative of progression, which highlights core concepts in different subject areas. Um, if you're interested in this, 
I would suggest that you Google the British Columbia curriculum, and there's some really good examples on their website uh, of this and how it works. And um, another good example of this is the work that was done by Wynne Harlan in science, um, which is based on a big ideas approach. Very interesting. Um, but what it does is it provides, I think, a much better starting point for articulating con content knowledge than we have currently with the, the thousands or hundreds of ticky boxes that we have with the E's and O's. Um, to move on here, um, they also said that uh, reporting on levels has its limitations, something I agree with wholeheartedly. Um, they were never designed for this. Um, and yet we've now got a situation where uh, we're not only reporting against levels, but we're using those levels to judge whether schools are operating effectively. So this is injected uh, a level of performativity into the system. And the OECD have strongly recommended uh, the consideration of instead of a census approach like SNSA, instead of sample survey based system. And that really jars a little bit with what the government are recommending in the, the framework document. Okay, so I've said enough about that. What I want to do is to talk a little bit about the, um, the way forward in my view. Um, we set out in this book here, which was published earlier this year, um, a framework for thinking about curriculum making as a systemic activity. So it's, it's looking at how we need to think across the whole system when we make the curriculum in schools. Um, there are a couple of elements I just want to draw your attention to this here. The first one is actually we need to think differently about what we mean by curriculum. And by curriculum, we tend to think about it as content, which is a limited approach, or we tend to think about it as everything, the totality of everything in CFE, which is too vague. So what I'm offering here is uh, a definition which allows us to think about the different practices of curriculum. So in other words, curriculum here is seen explicitly as social practice, and they've given some examples there, that happens across multiple layers of any system. And the trick is then, is, 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 is how we think about what those practices are. So the idea, first of all, that curriculum is something that we make, we do together, is important to hear. The idea that it's made up across multiple sites of activity, for example, government offices, schools, agencies, classrooms, and the idea that it is comprising a multi multitude of practices, including assessment, pedagogy, um, organisation, etc., and how we support it. I also want to just emphasise here that curriculum making is complex, it's systemic, and that we should be thinking uh, really carefully about how the different bits fit together. This quotation from Connolly sums it up very nicely. We can never anticipate everything because we're talking about complex open systems here, but we can certainly put a lot more thought than we do currently into thinking about how these, these systems work together and try and avoid some of the tensions and contradictions that we currently have. For example, between accountability systems and curriculum policy. We um, developed this, uh, we adapted it from other earlier work by, uh, for example, the SLO in the Netherlands, this idea of curriculum as operating across layers. Uh, unlike the SLO, who see this as institutions, different layers, uh, what we try to do is to show these as different types of activity. So, for example, supra is the generation of ideas about education, often taking place internationally in organisations like the OECD. The macro 
is where we operationalize that into frameworks, policies, often taking place nationally, but could be locally, local authorities, for example. The MISO is something that's not captured in other models very well, which is basically the activity that sits between policy and practice. It's what connects teachers with policy and often would comprise things like leadership and support. It would uh, comprise the setting up of, of agencies like the RICS to support and lead curriculum development, but it would also include things like curriculum brokers, textbook publishers, etc. And then the micro is the whole school planning level and the nano is what happens in classrooms, the pedagogic interactions, the curriculum events. Okay, I think it's important to stress here that these, because they're different types of activity, they're not institutional levels, is that different actors, for example, teachers can operate across multiple levels. So in Wales, for example, we have teachers who are operating in classrooms teaching, involved in curriculum development at a programme level in their own schools. Um, in the case of pioneer teachers in Wales are seconded um, for two to three days a week to work with other schools as curriculum leaders, and in some cases have been involved in writing the national policy. So these are teachers who are working across four of these five layers, uh, and that's significant. So what does that mean then? And I want to finish off, and I'm aware now that I'm probably running two or three minutes over, but um, I want to finish off by having a look at what this means in the case of the OECD report. Um, let's, let's have a look at the macro, first of all. What does it mean? Um, I, I do think that uh, in terms of policy development, we need to systematically look at the four capacities. Are they still applicable as the core purposes of CFE? How do we update them? For example, we may take the capacity of the um, responsible citizen and think, well, is that sufficient? We want responsible citizens, but do we also need critical active citizens? So that's something to add, I think, there as well. Secondly, I think we need to consider very seriously in the longer term, and this isn't a, a project for this year or next year, but perhaps over the next five to 10 years, whether we need to overhaul the technical curriculum reform uh, form of the curriculum to uh, bring in, for example, something like a big ideas framework. And this is perhaps a job for a new curriculum agency. We need, I think, to have a look at the structure and methodology for qualifications. And I see probably three um, areas here which require reform. The first one is in the structure of the senior phase, and particularly, I think, getting rid of this uh, ladder of qualifications with the two-term dashes where we move uh, through a course very quickly and then move on to the next level. We perhaps need to be looking at a two or three-year qualification with multiple step-up points maybe something that's more holistic, like a baccalaureate. These are uh, discussions to have. Secondly, we need to look at the methodology. And I think we need to be far more imaginative so that assessment for qualifications isn't just pencil and paper tests, that we're, we're thinking about a range of different approaches. And we need to move away from this idea that qualifications are exams. Thirdly, I think it's an opportunity to ditch what for me is an outdated and misguided model for qualifications, and that's the competency-based model. It was designed for vocational education. It requires mastery, so therefore it requires regular tests to make sure co uh, content has been covered. And we, we're, we're all familiar with the, the, the regular treadmill of unit tests, for example. So moving away from that, and I can perfectly well see that if you're testing, um, you know, 
vocational areas like plumbing or electrician work, then you need to make sure people know all the steps. Certainly less applicable when we're looking at abstract academic subjects. So that would be, I think, one area we need to look at. In terms of infrastructure, I'd like to see uh, a new strategic level curriculum agency which sets policy, which uh, has representation from across the educational community, which commissions research, which is responsible for evaluating the curriculum. But that's separate from the operational level stuff. So, for example, um, awards of qualifications. Um, so that needs to, I think, be, be separated out so that we haven't got these huge organisations that do everything in-house and effectively are accused of marking their own homework. Um, on the subject of, of infrastructure, I think that the RICs have made a good start in some cases, but there's much more we can do with them. I think we need to repurpose them. They need to move much more away from an idea that we're um, using them to, to measure and evaluate, to see them as a, a supportive infrastructure for practice. I think they need to be embedded much more in the work of schools, and that could be done to some extent, I think, by using the Welsh model of pioneer teachers, where um, a lot of the people who work in the in the, in the RICs, uh, I mean, there will need to be some full-time people, but a lot of people who work in the RICs are actually working in school for part of the week and in RICs for part of the week, and I think that would connect the, the two networks, the schools and the RICs, much more closely. I can see uh, opportunities for all sorts of different networks, cross-curricular networks, subject networks, and moderation and assessment, perhaps in the longer term, a replacement for inspection through peer evaluation. And I personally can't think of a, a better way of uh, doing professional learning than actually looking at what others do and, and being involved in evaluation of that. And something else which I think we've badly missed since CFE came along is the production of resources. So we can stop each and every school having to reinvent the wheel. And this is something that I would say needs to be done by teachers working across schools with each other. And um, for example, if we are interested in integrated science or social studies, then we need to develop national resources for that rather than expecting each and every school to do it. Fundamentally, and to finish off here, um, we need to create teacher agency. We need to create not only the capacity um, the, the expertise in the system, but we need to create the conditions where that expertise can happen. It's all very well to talk about the empowered system, but the empowered system is no good if we have an environment which is, is uh, under-resourced, an environment which is risky, an environment where people um, really don't have the resources to make um, decisions and to exercise agency. So we need to create these conditions capacity, resources, permissions, a safe environment for meaningful curriculum making in schools and colleges by teachers and lecturers. And I think this involves a, a radical revisioning. I think it involves much less hierarchy than we currently have. And I think it involves much more professional agency in the system. So to finish off the OECD report, is it a distraction? It can seem like that coming out of COVID when everyone's absolutely done in and it seems like there's too much happening. Is it a wake up call or is it, as I hope, an opportunity to do something really constructive with our schools? And I shall stop at that point and open up the conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. I shall stop sharing my screen, shall I? Yeah, go on. Mark, so much in there and I put in the chat that we could take this in so many different directions. Um, 
we're going to give people a bit of thinking time to, to digest. I think we could give people, you know, a week to digest. Uh, we covered so many aspects there. Um, I, I love the analogy of stuffing the bird. I remember being a principal teacher of maths when uh, this new curriculum uh, concept came upon us. And uh, yeah, give, give me a, a secondary teacher in Scotland at the time that didn't think about, well, how do I get what we already do to kind of look like what it is thereafter? Because there wasn't the quantum leap of, of thinking and creativity afforded at that time. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, we got E's and O's, 1,800 plus, 20 odd thousand pages of uh, web material. Uh, we had benchmarks, significant aspects of learning, and then the senior phase hit us with the, the national qualifications and then the changes to national qualifications when we got rid of units. And we'll not even talk about the last two years. So while that in itself has been quite, quite a whirlwind. You also, you, you mentioned about um, assessment, so I'm sure people will have questions about that, the future of assessment. Um, you, you picked up on the fact that if we, we do seem to value the four capacities, perhaps they should shift and, and adapt, um, but do we really want to assess and measure them? You know, should we actually be measuring how responsible a citizen is? Is that very 1984, to my mind? Um, how can you really assess someone's confidence? So it, it, assessment, qualification, um, you've, you've touched on inspection and you mentioned peer evaluation. That could be a whole three-hour session on its own. And um, you got to the nub of the issue for, for those of us that work day and daily um, in the system in schools, which is it's actually about resource, uh, which is, our best resources always are people and um, the agency, the, the, the empowerment that people actually have, not the empowerment that a nice diagram um, wants us to, to have and, and believe in. So question for you then, Mark, I suppose linking that back to, uh, linking the empowerment agenda back to the governance review that we had after the last OECD, and you mentioned that we didn't quite achieve what we'd set out to do. And the reform process at the moment, and uh, you know, full disclosure, I am a member of Ken's group, as many of you will be aware. Uh, we've been asked to be bold. We are looking at structure, and I know that's counterintuitive. And actually, most of the conversations haven't started with structure, they've started, started with uh, vision and with purpose. But if we build on that idea, Mark, of agency and empowerment and, and the model that you outlined where teachers can actually influence across all different levels in the system. Where would you like to see us start? How do we move closer to that? Um, well, that's a huge question, but I mean, okay, so, so I suppose what we've tended to do over the recent years is focus on the individual aspect of agency. So we've done a lot of professional learning work. We've got very good master's degree programs, um, which have been a good success, I think. Um, but I think there's a general lack of understanding uh, in the system amongst perhaps some of the people who make decisions that you can't simply empower people by saying you are empowered. In fact, empowerment itself is, a, is quite a problematic um, uh, concept 
it's associated with neoliberal thinking about handing over responsibility, for example. Um, so I, I, I would I would avoid the word empowerment to, uh, really altogether. I think it's really about how we enable teacher agency. Now, if we take an ecological view of agency, agency is about much more than giving people skills and knowledge and saying, get on with it. It's about also creating those conditions. I can be a very effective teacher, but I can be effectively disabled by the context I'm working in. So it's how we, we adjust the system. Now, I think that has to start with an understanding that there is more to empowerment than simply saying you are empowered in the system. So that's a good starting point. Once we have that understanding, I think we can start to do very practical things. One of them is we can start to, to think about the resources that people need to do this, and that would include time, which of course is now on the agenda very much with the additional teachers. It would include thinking about the conceptual resources that people need. Um, so I'm, I'm talking here about, for example, access to ideas, for example, in research, but also enabling networking that's meaningful because we get ideas by talking to other professionals. If we stay in our boxes, we just recycle old, old policies and practices. Um, I'm also thinking about relational resources here then. So it's, it's about how we can meaningfully connect people in order to make the most of the networks. Now networks do a number of things. They spread ideas and, and the cognitive resources around, but they also give people confidence, they protect people, they give people validation for their ideas and so on. So we need to do much more of that. Um, I think also we need to think about the constraints that get in the way and a big, big elephant in the room here is the way in which we use accountability. And I, I was very struck by something that one of the OECD team said uh, in the early conversations that Scotland has a Nordic vision for education, but it has Anglo-American methodologies for doing it. So in other words, we, we, we see this sort of egalitarian uh, approach to education, the non-hierarchical or less hierarchical approach to education in countries like Finland and Norway and admire it. But then we're using essentially English instruments like inspections, use of performance data through um, tools like Insight, which we know um, have distorting effects, um, evaluative use of assessment data. Um, and, and I think a particular problem is the assumption that we can use the E's and O's and the levels in the E's and O's because they were never designed for that. Um, they don't arguably articulate and cohere very well anyway. And yet we're using them now to say that X number of pupils in this school have achieved level three. Uh, it is problematic right the way through the process from the start of the conception of these and those right the way through to the, the fact that, you know, assessment by its very nature is always going to have an element of unreliability. But it provides, um, I think, an illusion of certainty in the system that we're doing well because the, the data says we're doing well. But if that data is, is spurious, it's the old um, social science adage, rubbish in, rubbish out. And I think there is an element of that happening as well. Um, Mark, there's a couple of questions coming in in the chat. We'll come to those in a second, but um, you've mentioned the RICs a couple of times. Can you say a bit more for us about, because I know there are people here from RICs as well, and we're all, everybody's situated in a RIC in one way or another as well. But how do we how do we achieve that shift 
Do we have the, the, the conditions and the systems and processes there? What do we need to do to, to shift that from, from where we are to what you think would be more, more helpful? Okay, so I think the, the danger with the RITs that we have is that they become a duplicate of local authority functions, which you know, are, are about really monitoring and governance and management. And, and I think I had a conversation with John Swinney about this a couple of years ago, and he was very clear that his original intention for the RIC the RICs was that they were infrastructure to support the development of practice. Now, I wonder whether that message has been to some extent lost. I know that some of the activity that goes on in the RICs is, is about um, evaluation. Uh, I know that a lot of the activity is about um, being able to demonstrate whether particular activities are raising attainment in literacy and numeracy. And, and I think it, it, it really goes back to um, um, the idea that Billy was talking about, about measuring the full capacities, it's in the same sort of area. I think there's a confusion here about function. You know, are the RICs about measurement and what in Wales they call challenge, or are the RICs about support? Uh, in, in the same way with the four capacities. Are the four capacities something that we should be measuring, or are the four capacities aspirations that inform our thinking when we develop practice? And I would argue for the latter in both cases here. So for me, the RICs should be something that actually is a mechanism to bring people together into networks with resources, time, space, money, uh, and, 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 and providing that infrastructure to stimulate the sort of meaningful networking that's going to get things done. So in a sense, it is mobilizing the resources that are in the system through an infrastructure. Um, now that will require some cultural shifts because it's not, we're not used to working in that way. And I do, but I do think we need to move away from this idea that um, a, an organisation like the RIC is is another instrument of governance that sits somewhere in a hierarchy. Until we get rid of that idea, then we're not going to make the best use of them. Um, one way, as I said, of making better use of them is is by making sure that a good number of the people who work in them are also working in schools at the same time. So we have this ready connection between practice day to day in schools and the sort of support that the RICs will provide. Thanks, Mark. Great, thank you. So we're going to go to the chat now, Mark. And um, let's pick up on a question from, from Audrey. So Audrey is, it has basically asked about how we start now to create the conditions that we need to support teacher agency. So maybe just getting a, a little bit more into that teacher agency idea. Um, a powered system, collaborative curriculum making. Um, and Audrey, you pick up on the point about our low non-contact time. So we know that there's a, there's a commitment, a notion that we might have an extra 90 minutes. I wonder if that would help. Um, and you mentioned about CAT sessions, which I would imagine would be about collegiate time. So let's just sort of build on that notion about networking and collaboration then and pick up on Audrey's, Audrey's points. What, what is, what, what's key then to collaboration that can help agency empowerment and start to shift from a top-down system to a system that's uh, more progressive than that? Okay, I'm, 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 I'm pleased that you didn't say bottom up, Billy, at yeah. that point, um, because I think that that's, that that's a, um, a, another one of these spurious dichotomies that we, we're very good at um, producing in education, you know, traditional versus progressive. And as you, as you indicated, I see that in terms of rock music, but 
Um, you know, sage on the stage versus guide on the side is another one. Skills versus knowledge. Um, the best way to deal with them is, is yeah. substituting the word versus for the word and, which is what the Cambridge Primary Project did 10 years ago. And I think it works in this case as well. Um, I don't think it's sufficient just to open up spaces. And we know from a lot of work on teacher learning communities that, um, you know, collaborative work can actually be quite um, unproductive. It can be subversive. It can be unhelpful. Uh, it can be... Um, it can head off in all sorts of wrong directions because it can be uninformed. So I would suggest here that what we need are two things. One is that we need to combine the best of top down and bottom up. And that means that we need sensible, constructive regulation at the, the macro level. So this is why I'm very keen on looking at the, the structure of CFE and moving away from the E's and O's, which I think encourage uh, a tick box approach to move into something that actually is conceptually richer. But then what we need to do is we need to facilitate people's sense-making of that and get people as professionals to think about it in a structured way. One way we can do that is through very clear processes like collaborative professional inquiry, um, the work that Valerie Drew and I have been doing for about 10 years now with critical collaborative professional inquiry, I think is one such approach. There are others as well. Um, that provides a process um, and it's a particular process that's useful, I think, because what it does is it encourages people to engage with purposes. It encourages people to engage with research literature in order to inform their thinking about the process. It interrupts, because often what happens with collaboration is we simply recycle what we've always done. Um, so that's part of the issue. But of course, we also need to empower people, and I'm using that awful word there, um, we need to, um, to make sure that this is genuine um, you know, collegial uh, work that's been done by schools. Um, it's not just a, a contrived collegiality, to quote Andy Hargreaves. Um, so there needs to be some genuine choice in this. Um, it's, it's not just a case of using these processes to, to implement the curriculum in the way that the government wants it to be implemented. There needs to be, I think, an acceptance that what emerges in schools might be quite different to what the government intended in some ways, and that might be a good thing, as long as it's done for good educational reasons and, and not done out of um, ignorance or lack of time or whatever. So it's, it's about combining those, but I think more than anything else, and to go back to the teacher agency um, part of the question that Audrey asked there, this I think is about um, making sure that we have the right resources, the right processes, the right conditions so that people are trusted, for example, um, and, and safe environments for people to work in this sort of way. And, and I think fundamentally, it means breaking down the hierarchies we're used to working, uh, working in. Um, one of the, 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 the empirical findings we found from our work on critical collaborative professional inquiry significantly is it actually breaks down hierarchies in the communities working with them because we have probationers working with ed teachers, for example. So a few thoughts on there, probably a little random, but. No, all good. Thank you. Um, I'm going to bring Jean in uh, just now, if I can. Jean popped a question in the chat, and I have checked with her that she's happy to come on camera and, and <laughs> speak, so don't panic anybody else. I'm not going to pick on you. But Jane, would you like to, to just come in just now with the, the question you, you popped in the chat? Yep. Sure, it's probably more of an essay than a, a question, but I suppose I'll start with, you know, is are we thinking too narrowly when we're talking about kind of reforming the education system? Because there are classroom assistants across the school that are working with our most vulnerable learners and 
probably have quite a different view potentially about what the curriculum should look like for some of the people they're working with all day but their contracts quite often are limited to when those children are in school so there isn't a time in their contract to be able to meaningfully contribute um, and how can we look at maybe a, a pathway into teaching um, for, for some of these people because there are training programs starting for classroom assistance but how could we continue that on to um, some of these people becoming teachers who would be phenomenal if they had the opportunity. Yeah, no, I'm absolutely with you on that one, Jane. Um, I mean, not just classroom assistants, CLD, librarians, other workers in the school. Some of the uh, uh, CCP we've done has actually involved a range of people, not just teachers. And I think that's it's really important to do that. Um, the, some of the work that we're doing in Wales involved, for example, uh, colleagues from special schools working with um, mainstream school people as well. So I think the we we all benefit from having a broader view of um, education and um, we're very good at, at getting into silos. I, re, I re remember reading the paper by Anne Edwards several years ago where she talked about sacred and profane areas of practice and we're very good at putting boundaries around the sacred areas and as teachers we're very good at excluding some of the other agency workers, for example social workers from our work because we're the specialists. And I think to some extent, we've seen that with the exams issues last year, where um, an organization that has a lot of expertise, SQA, has considered that, that ex expertise is sufficient to, to run an exam system and has arguably ignored or at least downgraded some of the other expertise in the system, which would have led to better solutions and a more holistic approach. So um, I remember talking to um, uh, a senior academic when we were doing the work on the um, uh, the SQA review last year, who said that you know that the history of societies is replete with examples of of areas where um, people with specialist expertise make catastrophic errors because they don't involve different viewpoints. So I think it's absolutely essential that we have those. Um, David Leet's work at Newcastle is interesting here because they've done a lot of work in terms of community curriculum making how, for example, we can involve um, uh, members of the community, including organizations, but also you know, parents, et cetera, in, in building the curriculum in school. Um, their, um, their research center, CFLAT, the Center for Future Learning and Teaching, has done quite a bit of work on this, particularly around problem-based learning. So I think there's, there's an awful lot we can learn from people who aren't necessarily teachers, but who have a, a very valid view on this. Great. I'm going to combine a couple of questions um, that, that give a really good, um, I suppose, a good balance to the, the opportunity and the challenge that we're in, Mark. So from Graham, you know, how do we seize what could be a golden opportunity, right? And also from Kevin further on in the chat points out that, but how are we actually going to do it just now? You know, we're asking, we're consulting with people, we need responses to, to, the, to the reform group by the end of November, um, Ken will make recommendations in January. We're punch drunk with COVID, as Kevin put it, which I think is a great phrase. So how do we not miss a golden opportunity, given that everyone is still suffering from uh, COVID fatigue and we're very much still in the thick of it, not yet in recovery? Okay, just repeat the first part of that question because I got distracted by someone putting something in the chat then. Yeah, so Graham was asking, basically, you know, how do we, how do we seize the golden opportunity? You know, it might be quite some time before we get the chance to look at 
big reform, structural reform, um, infrastructure and, and changing governance for, for quite a while. And Kevin's coming in and saying, at the same time, we have a profession, we have um, everyone who's associated. Yeah, I, got, I got the Kevin bit, that's fine. Yeah, yeah it's, I mean, the timing is, is significant. I mean, I, I think that we need to have, um, I mean, this always reminds me of the Dutch researcher, um, Joran Immens, I think his name was, who, who talked about think big, act small. You know, we need to have a strategic view for the next 10 years. And I know that doesn't fit neatly with electoral cycles, but if we have a very clear idea of what the priorities are now and what the priorities are for next year and the year after, and a clear timeline. Um, and this is why I found the government's document a little disappointing because it didn't set that out. It's, it's left too many things sort of open to interpretation. Um, it's, as I said, it seems to close down possibilities for reform at the same time as opening them up in other areas. Um, so I, I would I would like to I would like to see that sort of clarity of thinking. Now that's not to say that we need to pin down to say we will reform the curriculum by doing this, but what it is to say is that um, the timetable is well we're going to do the um, you know get the infrastructure in place this year, and once that's happened, this the, the the emergent group will have a responsibility then for taking forward this agenda over a three year period with the following sort of milestones. I think that we. We, we should be in a position fairly soon after Ken's report is published um, to be able to put that sort of detail in. And I think that would keep people happy. But I think we also need to have very clear avenues for people to feed into this process. Um, and um, I'm mindful of what Walter Humes once said to me that uh, the word consultation begins with the word con. I think Walter's perhaps been a bit, a bit cynical on that, but we do a lot of consultation in Scotland I'm not always convinced that we do very much with it. Um, so we need to have genuine consultation and genuine opportunities for people to put their, their ideas into the process. And so that we are genuinely, you know, going with the profession as far as possible, not, not sort of, um, well, providing the impression that uh, this is happening anyway and we're not really that interested in your views, which many people think is the case. Mm. And I do have the pleasure of your friend and colleague, uh, Walter, as, as part of that expert panel, and his insight and experience is absolutely invaluable. Um, I just want to catch something that, that came up in the, in the chat earlier, Mark, um, just uh, from, from Kathleen, who I know is part of the Northern Alliance. Um, Rick, just, I guess, acknowledging that it might be useful to have further discussion at some point um, with some people who are working in RICS and who are working quite hard to to make sure that the RIC isn't just another layer but is actually creating the time and space for collaboration and, and improvement and I know that we've both got Kathleen and Audrey on today who who are kind of very uh, what's the word uh, driven towards that and would welcome the opportunity perhaps to have more discussion and and kind of debate around that so um if you're agreeable later I'll maybe try and connect connect you up so that that yeah, yeah I mean I've had conversations about this with with both Kathleen and Audrey actually um and, and I don't want to create the impression that I'm somehow against what the RICs are doing I think there's some good work emerging yeah I think that um there are conflicting um visions operating with the RICs and some of those are to do with the local authorities um and the agendas that the local authorities bring to them um some of them are down to, I suppose, a lack of awareness in schools about what the RIC does. 
Um, so so it's it's a it's a much more complicated um, situation, and, and I'm also aware there's some quite significant variations of practice across the six RICs here as well. Yeah. So I don't want to convey the impression that there's not good things happening. There's some very good things happening in the RICs here, uh, uh, but okay. I but I think that that we could probably um, have a, a more coherent approach nationally to what the RICs are, and I think that has to come to some extent from government actually, and an expectation that actually they, they, to my mind, that they should not be used for carrying out local authority performativity functions actually, but, but, but should be really much more explicitly about their work. I know, for example, that Kathleen's doing in the Northern Alliance. Mm -hmm. So, so part, part of the challenge there, Mark, is that, that the RICs came from the governance review, which of course put the role of local authorities at risk. You know, there was an education bill and, and there was many that actually felt that the days of 32 local authorities uh, with statutory duty for education might have shifted. Um, so they almost forced people to work together. And the, the leadership for that sat with local authorities. Now, what you put forward, let's dig into that a little bit more, is you talk about, um, now that there's a research piece that, that's about to come out about the effectiveness of RICS. And, um, you know, we'll see what it's got to say, but I, I I think that if you ask, uh, if the only people you consult with are people that are involved, you will get one one view. You, you mentioned there that not uh, every practitioner in Scotland would know what RICs do. Best way to get to know what they do is to get involved. So tell us a bit more about your idea and what you see in Wales then about um, people at the chalk face being actually part of that RIC. Yeah, I mean, this. I don't want to convey the impression either that they've got it right in Wales. I'm just keeping mm -hmm. an eye on the time here because I need to be away very soon, actually, another five minutes or so. Um, you know, the, the Welsh have got four regional consortia. Um, they're, they're different in governance to the RICs. They're actually limited liability companies uh, and they, the local authorities were obliged to pool their resources. They operate, I think, quite autonomously from the local authorities in a way that the RICs in Scotland don't, because um, the RICs are basically run by the local authorities to, to a large extent, I think, with the rotating directorships and so on. Um, so there's a different situation altogether. And I think we can also point to the, uh, the Welsh situation where um, there is a huge variety of practices there as well. Um, they were set up originally, I think, in Wales to operate a sort of um, accountability function. They call it challenge. And people were going in with spreadsheets and saying, what are you doing about this? And so on. Um, one of the, the consortia in Wales moved quite quickly about five years ago with the new curriculum to see in its role much more in terms of support. But I think coincidentally, at the same time, we saw the development of the, of the two pioneer networks in Wales, which have, I think, subsequently come a bit closer together. One of them is for professional learning and the other one is for curriculum. And the curriculum pioneers were, were brought together um, to work across the regional consortia to work um, in, in clusters of schools to develop the curriculum and they've done a lot of uh, work there but they've also been involved in writing the national curriculum so we've got quite a different situation now it's not rosy one of the consortia has just had two local authorities have pulled out of it um, completely I don't know what they're going to be doing now um, They've, some have worked better than others, but I think from my perspective, what I like is the idea of networks of expert teachers who remain connected to schools. 
So we're, we're always going to need people who are full-time employees or secondees in the RICs because there's obviously an infrastructure job to do there. But a lot of the networking work could be done by funding schools to release good members of staff to act in a leadership role uh, across um, the region. Uh, and there are all sorts, as I indicated in the, the presentation, all sorts of different types of networks we could have. Now, I think that we're seeing the emergence of networks anyway in the RICs, but I think we could take it to that next level. And I think two things would happen. One is that we would get a, a more developed sense of networks across the system, uh, which in a sense would become the system operating its own networks rather than a governance structure doing it. And I think secondly, um, we would be connecting those networks much more closely into the day-to-day -day work of schools. Now, obviously, there's a lot of a lot of conceptual work needs to be done here, um, and and of course, we do have to take into account uh, the existing um, structural conditions in Scotland, um, which is that we have local authorities that they have a, a role in this as well. So it's it's not going to be an easy task, but but part of it, I think still relates back to this idea of what the RICs are for um, and if and if we see them as being you know 100% about supporting the development of practice and 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 move them away from this um, evaluation function that I see in some of them at least then um, we, I think we will be more effective at using them yeah great thanks Mark um, thank you so much for your input, your presentation, the conversation, the responsiveness to questions. We've not managed to get to all of them. Um, one that we could have spent another hour talking about was from Alison just at the end, and we might just engage in that over Twitter about, you know, your views on the limitations of the, the current stage of reform. Um, because, you know, you, you, you talk about the functions of SQA and Education Scotland, and actually it takes you so much wider into RIC's local authorities. Um, different layers of governance, um, but I thoroughly enjoyed your presentation. I can see from the chat others did too. Um, I do not want to uh, impinge on your time any further because I know you have a, a dinner date. I also know that Andrea, your wife, is on the call and she would probably just come on and uh, or, or worse, come into the room that you're in and drag you away. So uh, on behalf of Sarah and myself, great to connect with you again, no doubt. We'll have you back for another podcast and we can evaluate the next phase, how we've done so far and what's next, because one, one certainty is that things will continue to change and evolve, and that's probably as it should be. So thank you, Mark. Um, to everyone who's joined, let's keep the conversation going on Twitter, keep the questions coming. Um, you know how to find Mark. Uh, he's, he's very responsive. And as, as Sarah has mentioned, We've got a couple of links um, formed from the conversation today, follow-up conversations as well. Sarah, you want to close? Uh, <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for your time. We will share the recording. We will share, I'll share the links and the uh, the PowerPoint with you as well later. Um, if if you know people who signed up and had an event bike problem, I've had I've been juggling listening with um dms on twitter and emails coming in so if you know anybody who missed out please um assure them they will get a link to this and i'm very sorry i can't control eventbrite 
I can control a lot, manage a lot, Eventbrite beyond me. Uh, but thank you, everybody. It's lovely to see you. Have a great evening and a great weekend when it comes. Thank you. Thank you, Billy and Sarah. Bye. <laughs> Enjoy your dinner, Mark. <laughs> I will. Thank you all. Take care. <laughs>